Like I was talking to somebody today, Kevin Wilson, who's the chairman and CEO of Buzz Franchise Brands. These are the guys that did Mosquito Joe right when, you know, the mosquito repellent thing was coming into play and, and they have multiple brands now. And that dude is sharp. He's a venture capitalist from Bain and Company. And he has applied a lot of those same principles to British Swim School, Home Clean Heroes, Pool Scouts, and now they have a new one, which is outdoor um, holiday lighting. So it's like these dull, mundane looking businesses, right? You're like, come on, how much money can you really make with one of these things? And if you peel back the onion on some of those business models, those guys are super sophisticated. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show is Drew Carpenito, and this episode is a lot different than some of the other ones I've done. Drew is a franchise broker and has been in the industry for well over a decade at this point. He's seen a lot, he's learned a lot, he knows a lot about many different franchise brands, similar to me. So we kind of just riff and talk franchises from emerging brands we've seen over the years, why they've taken off and what's made them successful as well as stories and deals that have been done in the franchise world that surprise us. I think you're gonna enjoy this and think of it as sitting as a fly on the wall and just listening to franchise industry folks chat. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Can you maybe just like give a background of like how long you've been in the industry and kind of your road to where you are today? The short story is I'm a franchise lifer. So I fell into it back in 2006, straight out of grad school, went to work for a disaster restoration company called Advanaclean. And a couple of months after I joined, the company decided to franchise. And so, you know, I had all the assumptions like everybody else does about franchising when they first hear about it. And, um, you know, did a little bit of digging. And I was like, whoa, okay, like, this is a thing. And there's this whole non food side of franchising. And um, so ended up sticking around and Jeff Duden, the founder, uh, who's not like, you know, he's famous inside the franchise circles. Um, He gave me way too much responsibility at a young age, probably (laughs) like people wouldn't, you wouldn't draw it up that way. But you know, so I stuck it all in and we ended up growing Advanaclean to, I don't know, I had like 125, 150 locations when I left eight years later and I did everything. You know, we had like a, we were using salesforce.com back in like 2006 and doing a lot of value add things on the back end for that business, centralized call center, you know, all kinds of stuff. So got a ton of experience doing a bunch of stuff and then, and then got tapped go do some international franchise development for uh, Tutor Doctor, Wow, which is like a one-to-one tutor matchmaking service. I knew nothing about international stuff, and uh, but <laughs> we ended up, it, it, Tutor Doctor had kind of, they were the darling. When we were growing at Vanaclean, Tutor Doctor was the darling back in 08, 09, 2010, that kind of time frame. And um, so, I, you know, I lost a lot of deals to Tutor Doctor. So I was, when they tapped me, I was like, all right, I'm interested. It's a lot easier to sell education than it is disaster restoration <laughs> services, right? So anyways, did some international stuff with them. And I think we ended up growing in like 14 different countries, which is, you know, fun and all that kind of stuff. But I had a young, my, I have twins and ended up leaving the corporate side to be a broker and do what I'm doing today. So. Wow, that's interesting. Were you guys doing master franchisees for Tutor Doctor? In some countries we did. And then in some countries we did not. Like the UK was amazing. 
And we did not master franchise it. We had an operations team there. And the UK is a great place to franchise. It was, I mean, the market was ripe. They love franchising. And then um, Australia, we did it ourselves. And then some other countries, but like South Africa, a couple countries in Africa, we mastered that one. Okay. Yeah. And if folks aren't familiar, masters effectively in the international market, you sell the rights to the concept to an individual or a company. And there is still a royalty payment that that franchisee has to pay back to, you know, the top franchisor. But right, like the master franchisee has to set up their own billing, all the infrastructure, and then they can also sell franchisees to anyone within their country. And then they're from the franchisees they have, they like the master franchisees collecting royalties from them. Yeah, they're like a mini franchisor, basically, for that country or for that area. And they split the fees essentially and the splits are always a little different depending on who's doing what but i'm curious if you're allowed to share like what's the biggest uh because i mean some like obviously the big food brands i mean to be a master franchisee i, I mean and the big ones happened decades ago but like mcdonald's japan burger king in australia i mean these to own the rights to a brand in another country it's usually like for those guys it's multiple millions it's tons of millions of dollars uh, so you ever like was there large price tags on these or for Tudor Doctor, you know, it was like a an owner operator kind of like single person kind of business. So it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't going to be like a $5 million, you know, Chick-fil-A or McDonald's kind of thing. So I, it was a couple hundred grand, you know, we would map out the territories and stuff like that, but it was typically like a couple hundred grand. And then dude, getting money in and out. I never knew how this whole crypto thing was going to go because <laughs> understanding how hard it was to get money out of countries. I was like, there's no way these countries are going to try to like to collect the royalties. To collect them, yeah, to collect the money and then accounting and taxes. Like, there's a lot that goes into it. I was always like, there's no way these governments are going to let crypto become a thing because then they're going to lose out on understanding how the currency flows in and out of their country. That's a big thing to look at. If anybody's going into a new country, like taxes and the currency flow, exchange rates, like, there's a lot to it. Yeah, I remember even because, uh, like, for emerging franchisors, sometimes it can be appealing, right? Where you maybe get an international inquiry. And do you think at least the emerging franchises I used to work with, we got excited by it's like, oh, like, well, if we're going to sell a master deal, it's going to be a, a bigger price tag. And that franchise fee revenue can be really helpful early on. But we were uh, close to doing a deal in China with a coffee brand. Uh, this is like four years ago for me. And at one point, one of my coworkers was like, it's like, realistically, though, if we sold this franchise, they take the concept, they take the branding. And they just never pay us a royalty. They're like, we don't have the money to sue someone in China. So like, that's an interesting aspect too for these like master franchises where like, you really got to know what you're doing and, and have the capital to enforce things if things go south. Because apparently that happens where there's brands just take the playbooks, the IP, and just they're like, we know you're never going to do anything with it. And they just, they basically hijack a business model. Yeah, it's like which country are you going to sue them in, whose laws are going to apply, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, and, and like what controls are you going to have in place to understand like what revenue is really being generated in these foreign countries? Um, yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot to it. Exponential Fitness, I think, is doing a pretty good job, but they're publicly traded. Yeah, they're massive. Monster, right? So yeah. go to Canada first. <laughs> if you want to international, expand internationally, go to Canada first, which is in and of its own right, the different provinces. They all have a couple different regulations, so... That's a good first step. And you don't uh, even need to master Canada, really, like that. You can support Canadian yeah. operations typically with your U.S.-based stuff. 
I've heard of us. Uh, there's like stories of uh, one of my old coworkers who's been in franchising, like basically around the same time as you. He has met people in like the Middle East who basically just buy up American brands and don't necessarily do anything with them. They just they want to be the master franchisee for American brands or Western brands in general. And yeah, they'll shell out like one to two million for like one of them was an education concept, Mathnasium. It's kind of a trophy where I guess they just he want this person. I don't know if it was oil money or what, but just very wealthy out there and just likes to show his friends and brag and like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like the cultural differences in different countries and how that can play into a business model are significant. Like we did a deal. Oh, I forget what country it was. It was it was somewhere in the Middle East. And Tudor Doctor's whole business model was the franchisee typically would go and meet with the parents, meet with their child to understand, you know, what's going on and get a feel for the child's personality so they could match them with the right tutor. Well, their culture was that you, a female could not go into somebody else's house. So that like eliminated a lot of female tutors from the business model, which, you know, half the tutor base, right? So it's like, okay, well, how do you work around that? And yeah, so the, the cultural aspects and, and how that plays into, you know, I think you've written a lot about it too. Like there's different menus of food businesses in different countries and stuff like that for a lot of those same reasons. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's so interesting. I just feel like uh, when you like dive into the weeds of the industry, I mean, they're, it's almost like franchise brands are, they're treated just like assets internationally at times. And it's just like fascinating. Like, I don't know, you have these, what starts as a small business becomes a sellable concept and then. There's just this whole, it's not the biggest market, but like you and I obviously on the inside of it just know what's going on. But I mean, there's this whole group of people and that's all they do is it's about buying franchise brands, expanding, or in some cases just buying it just to brag to your friends that you have it. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's like you've done a good job of, I think, helping people understand that the inside of the world of franchising because it's massive, especially the non-food side, which is kind of the side that I run on mainly, but, um, which is big it's, and it's probably less talked about than the food side, but it's significant. You know, if you drive around town and you start looking at every brand and you know, which ones are franchised and which ones aren't, I mean, it's, you know, every third business kind of thing. I mean, there's this whole world of like, you know, the, this emerging non-food side of franchising, which changes a little bit, but it's, you know, it's definitely not on the mainstream in terms of like the media and stuff like that, except for like orange theory and planet fitness, you know, those kind of things. But yeah. There's, you know, if you're driving around town, man, it's like, I don't know, one out of three, one out of four businesses are typically, you know, on the non-food side franchised. Um, like I was talking to somebody today, Kevin Wilson, who's the the chairman and CEO of Buzz Franchise Brands. These are the guys that did Mosquito Joe right when, you know, the mosquito repellent thing was coming into play and, and they have multiple brands now. And that dude is sharp. He's a venture capitalist from Bain and Company. And he has applied a lot of those same principles to... British Swim School, Home Clean Heroes, Pool Scouts, and now they have a new one, which is outdoor um, holiday lighting. So it's like these dull, mundane looking businesses, right? You're like, come on, how much money can you really make with one of these things? And if you peel back the onion on some of those business models, those guys are super sophisticated. Yeah, no, it's fascinating what he's doing at Buzz. And yeah, it's funny. I think there's two things that aren't really to your average surveyor of the franchise landscape like the food brands mcdonald's burger king wendy's uh domino's even like pizza hut they were started 30 40 50 years ago so they've been around for a while so that's a big part of it um it's like it takes time to scale up to the number of locations they have and develop that presence but also like people for the most part like everyone eats three times a day and like it's a lot easier to have a customer relationship 
when it's something that basically everyone in the population is definitely doing. Everyone eats food. And there's so many of these locations. So it's just more top of mind for the average person to think, associate franchises with food. But you're right. I mean, like there's lawn care franchises and mosquito repellent franchises. And it's not maybe something you're going to interact with from the consumer angle, but it is a massive world out there for sure. They're not the sexiest businesses sometimes, but fundamentally, you know, if you start like looking at the lifetime value, the customers, the recurring revenue, the expense structure, you know, the lower overhead aspect, and then how big some of these businesses can get if you really want to scale them. Like your mind would be blown again. I can't talk numbers, but the largest operator of British swim school, which is a swim school without having to build a pool, he mid seven figures is what I'm told. In revenue or, or profit? Revenue. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that's a good margin. Oh, yeah. So let's dive into kind of some of the cooler, uh, just non-food franchises that you've seen and the successful ones and maybe like how you can figure out which one is, you know, if it's early on in its life cycle as a brand, like what criteria you can look for. But I guess let's just let's talk about British Swim School. So to start and we can jump around. That's a concept, right, where, like you said, you're not, you don't have to build a pool. You're just like using, if there's public pool facilities, right? You come in and maybe rent it on a, per practice basis or per class basis? Yeah, you rent it from like a hotel pool that's not being used all the time. And they have a national, they have a deal with LA Fitness and some other national chains that have these pools that, you know, you kind of have to have it, but it's not a revenue generator, you know, a lot of times for these people, these companies. Yeah. So yeah, they rent, they just do a lease and um, they figured out how to make that work. So you don't have the expense or the time of having to go through the construction process and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like any business, you know, there's going to be some, you know, there's some pains with it. But, you know, the swimming market is one. I mean, you see the level five guys getting involved with it, right? I mean, and they've done, you know, Big Blue has been, again, it's not one of these talked about franchises, but the growth that they've had with Big Blue, which is the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, multi-million dollar investment, you are building a pool. I mean, they basically almost sold out the country in like three or four years. It's crazy. So it's a big market, like this, the swimming, you know, kid safety, swimming, fragmented, and um, which is kind of one of these niches that hadn't really been gotten after. Yeah, it is interesting because that is totally like direct opposite lens from a business owner where one you're having to shell out multiple millions of dollars, which is interesting. The level five guys, they like that because they feel like it's actually a moat, just like the pure capital that it takes to launch one of them. And so they're like, if someone wants to compete with us as a concept, like they have to go find these big time owners that can actually shell out for it. and. They clearly have uh, the network to kind of find the franchisees that can do it. And they feel that also, right, they're able to provide a different kind of a better service or different kind of service because they're building their own facilities. So like there's a different value prop they can offer than that the franchisee can offer the consumer compared to British Swim School. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like both of these companies, I believe, like spend a significant amount of time and resources mastering their model, right? Like Big Blue is not trying to be British and British is not trying to be a Big Blue. Like there's probably enough to go around for everybody, but they're two different operational businesses. And so like these companies that spend a lot of time and focus mastering their unit model, like that's where, you know, the really good franchise companies separate themselves significantly from all the players that you see on the franchise directories and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. And I think it's interesting too, because like a big question, I'm sure you got a lot too, right? Is like, hey, I don't have the money to shell out for these big food franchises or even the fitness and a big blue, like the big blue swim school, like basically brick and mortar brands are out of reach for a lot of people. But there is this class of like British swim schools where, because I think the common belief is, okay, if I don't have cash, I got to go start like a home services business. Like 
lawn care or plumbing or, or whatever the case is, which that is like probably the epitome of unsexy. There's a lot of unsexy franchises, but like those ones are the yeah. Yeah. least exciting, I think, to the average person. But like there's British Swim School, there's soccer shops or, or a newer one, Soccer Stars, right? So there's these non-home service franchises that don't require you to buy brick and mortar, but it's a lower investment and you can still like get up and running quickly cash flow. So like child services is kind of a big one. That's where I lump in British swim school and like the soccer stars. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're still good models and you just set you can still expand to multi units and earn a pretty good living off of them. If not even just using it as a stepping stone to something bigger. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, like you said, like budget being properly capitalized is half the battle for a franchise owner. Yeah. And it's half the battle for a franchise company, which is like one of the characteristics to look for in a lot of these emerging brands, right? Is they're overly capitalized and they're not relying on revenue from the franchise fees to sustain themselves. So yeah, there's all these characteristics. You know, if you like, if, if I was to break it down, right? Like Drew Carpenter's opinion, you know, anybody who's looking at doing a franchise needs to do their own independent investigation. There's my disclaimer, like you got to evaluate all these businesses. But like a lot of the really, the franchises I think that you see like take off and not not getting on the news kind of thing, but like do a good job of expanding nationwide and, and do create a network of happy and profitable franchisees. Like they're not creating a market, right? Like they're taking something that people either know about or are already purchasing and just figuring out a better mousetrap to capture some portion of that demand into their business. They don't, and they typically don't need to be the biggest player in town in order to have a very successful business, right? So they're not creating a market. A lot of times they're tapping into something like Stretch Lab, right? Stretch Lab ended up being a runner. And I, when I first heard about Stretch Lab, I was like, I don't get it. Well, I was, you know, <laughs> I had the head trash like everybody else did. And, you know, I think they went through a little bit of learnings. But if you think about it, right, like Stretch Lab, stretching's not new. We all know we should be stretching more and it's good for our bodies, good to prevent injury, recover from injury, the whole nine yards, right? But nobody had really mainstreamed it. Well, Stretch Lab ended up mainstreaming it. And I think they, you know, they'll probably tell you something differently. But I think they accidentally tapped into this wide demographic of people from like the 15 year old super athletic kid whose parents are paying for everything under the sun to make him the next Pey Peyton Manning or whatever. And then to the 70 year old that can't exercise, but stretching is a good way for them to get some muscle movement. So, you know, Stretch Lab was one of these businesses that got just kind of mainstreamed this stretching idea and um, it took off. Yeah, it's interesting because like I'm thinking it's like a I don't know much about the actual, like, if I was to walk into one, what the class would be like. Like, I don't know if it's one-to-one, -one, like, is, is it Stretch Lab? Yeah. Like, it feels like lazy person's yoga. Oh, dude, go. Yeah, you're in, a, you're, yeah, go, you're in Austin. Go check it out. Dude, you lay on a table. It's 1,000, 1,500 square feet. Super small footprint. And they have eight tables set up. There's no private rooms. So, like, everybody's getting stretched out in front of each other. And it's got this cool hip vibe, but it's simple build-out, simple construction, which drives down the traditional investment to get one open. And again, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, but put it this way, the people that I know that have owned Stretch Labs, you'd be surprised at what kind of numbers they're driving out of a thousand square feet of a location. Is it one employee per person? Like meaning like, yeah. So I just have an individual person stretching me out. There's a flexologist, man. You lay on, <laughs> lay on the table for 25 minutes and, and a flexologist does her thing and stretches out your body. How much does that cost me as a customer? Oh man, um, they've, from what I understand, they've been pushing the prices because they can. Um, I think it starts at a 25 minute stretch. I, I mean, we can look this up. Just what's your guess? I want to say it's like a dollar a minute kind of thing, typically, maybe, it, or more. It could be more than that. Like I, I got in under a founding membership and it was like 200 bucks a month for four 
50 minute stretches, which I don't think that they make that offer anymore because that, that was a good deal. So I think it, if I had to guess, that would probably be like a $300, $350 a month membership. But that's for the 50 minute stretch. If you do the 25s, which you can do with be half that or something, probably. It's just like a stretch where I'm sitting there and I'm like, if anyone's out there, it's not like I used to play soccer. We would do stretch sessions sometimes. And like they're working you like where you're touching your toes to the point you're breaking a sweat. It's like almost painful. Like, is that the kind of thing it is? Or am I like checking my phone, scrolling Instagram while they're stretching me out here? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's probably similar to yoga in some ways. Like there's breathing that you want to synchronize with the stretching. And so by having somebody else stretch you out, you get a 10 X deeper stretch or whatever the number is they will apply like they'll keep kind of increasing the resistance or the, the depth of the stretch and and the breathing helps a lot and then you just kind of you have like a safe word that you tell them once, they, <laughs> if once it gets if it's too much so it's interesting yeah i mean i see uh i'm not asking because i know you can't say and it's not in the fdd so uh but like to close out 2021 I and mean, they were doing about 50k in revenue a month was the average so that's a, like you know close to 600k a year run rate which i have no idea what the margin is on these things but i guess it sounds like the brick and mortar is not much and then you're just paying the people to stretch the flexologists like you said <laughs> i don't know how much they get paid but then you got marketing and it's probably a decent margin i guess like it's not food we're definitely pushing above 10 percent. but yeah we all thought it was because it had the one-to-one labor right we're like ah you know, all those consultants that, you know, think we know what the hell we're talking about, right? Um, we see, we hear about this new brand and we're like, no way, this thing ain't going to work. It's like super cuts for stretching, right? And super yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we were wrong. And yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they had like, I don't know what the numbers are, but like over the past couple of years, it's really hard to find an open market that has any good availability left to open stretch labs. So this is the 2022 FDD. So we could see the past three years. So they went, Nine franchises opened in 2019 to 64 in 2020 to 99 at the beginning of 2021 and then 148 open at the end of 2021. So like, I'm sure though, like that compounds. So I'm sure the next one that we're, I'd guess they probably have to, I haven't checked I could find it online. I'm sure, but like 300 plus already open and like more, way more units sold than it's being shown. Oh yeah. And they have a lot of like my buddy who I helped buy stretch lab here in Charlotte, which I probably should have bought it myself. Um, he's an amazing operator, but he just uh, decided to, he has four open, going to open two more in Charlotte. And he's going to, he just inked a deal to, to get the rights to Columbia, South Carolina, where he's going to open three more. So, you know, he's bullish on it. That's always a good sign when you see franchisees buying up more. And I think the lesson here, Drew, is there's someone's buying a franchise because this is the game you play with emerging franchises as a buyer is you reach out, it's like, oh, you only have 10 or so locations or maybe 20 or 30. But either way, it's just not a lot of proof of concept yet. And people, some people decide to wait, which sometimes that's the right move. It's like sometimes it, it makes sense. But you get to a point and Stretch Lab has clearly hit it. And it'll be really interesting to like just know how much they have open now in their next FTD. And also they report in these FTDs, folks, the uh, number of franchise agreements signed, but not outlets not opened yet. So you'll be able to know like, how much white space is actually already taken up, even though they haven't opened yet. But like they hit a point where the market, and I'm using air quotes, just decides there's enough proof of concept and buyers flood in. And before you know it, like you said, the, like basically the whole country is sold out. So, right, isn't there this waiting game that like it might make sense because it's not a, you don't have proof of concept yet, but there's also the risk that you could be missing out on a winner if you wait too long. 
Stretch Lab had a little backstory that I think could help with some indicators on, you know, things to consider. But yeah, I mean, ideally, it's like a little bit of a crawl, walk, run approach for a franchise company. Like, okay, hey, they've got a couple corporate locations open. They made that successful. They start to slowly expand in, into franchising and they bring on some good franchisees, some strong fundamental franchisees that serve as the foundation. And those franchisees are successful and happy. And maybe that's, I don't know, three, four, five, something like that. And that might take a year or two. Well, all of a sudden, now you have a franchise base that has proven out the business model. And then it could be time to start to hit the gas, number one, which will take a little bit more time. But like, that's typically how I've seen brands that that sustain the growth. You know, it's not just selling a bunch of franchises it's about helping these people get open and get successful. Like they typically kind of follow that crawl, walk, run approach. Like I'll give you an example, right? Like there was a franchise that I did some consulting work that was on one of your newsletters that I can't tell you who it was. Um, <laughs> They were getting ready to make a decision that would have set them back probably three to five years. And they didn't know any different. They were getting all this advice from the quote unquote advisors, right? And they were getting ready to ink a deal with a company called an FSO, a franchise sales organization. And they only knew what they had been told. It was a very small portion of the pie in terms of how they could expand. And so I randomly got connected with this group. And I walk in there, I was like, I don't know what you guys, you know, there's a whole nother 80% of the pie here that you could approach if you do it the right way. And so like, I think that a, a young, an emerging franchise band can benefit pretty significantly having a strong franchise development competency in-house so they understand how to manage it and how to, you know, what to look for in a franchisee and just that whole, that whole dynamic, right? So long story short, I helped them, you know, get that foundation in place, align with a company that was going to help them with a better strategy. And, you know, three years later, they just got a massive injection of capital from a private equity company that you and I both know. So like, you know, but that was like one decision, right? Like that could have changed the whole trajectory of it. But it goes into like as a potential franchise investor too, right? Like with Stretch Lab, they had exponential fitness. They had Anthony Geisler behind them who had done Club Pilates. So like these early Stretch Lab franchisees, they had to look at the Club Pilates track record to figure this out. But Club Pilates was a unicorn. We all should own Club Pilates. <laughs> that, that, but again, kind of the similar characteristics, like strong leadership team behind that both have industry experience and franchising experience. These guys are well capitalized. They have the resources needed to withstand, you know, rapid kind of growth. They invested in infrastructure and, you know, they have a focus on their franchisee satisfaction and profitability. And, you know, if you have those things, I mean, again, you never really know, but like those are some of the things I think you can look for in some of these super, super early emerging franchises to figure out if they're going to be, you know, a quote unquote type runner, you know, of a business. I definitely agree. And it's almost like we've mentioned level five capital, the private equity firm. Like if brands mimic like internally the level five thesis, which is they find an emerging brand that they think has a killer concept, they invest in the franchisor, which not, you know, that this, that doesn't apply for like just a franchisor that's trying to grow on their own, but they act as an anchor franchisee to prove out the concept and they have the operational chops. So like level five, invest in a brand, they build out 50 additional units as a franchisee of that brand as well. So I think the lesson for emerging brands is like what you said with Stretch Lab, where they kind of tapped into probably the Club Pilates franchisee network. Try to find like experienced franchisees for your first few territories that you sell. Because the last thing you want is a new brand that hasn't been franchised in a different market and a first-time franchise owner who may, I mean, everyone's got to be a first-time franchise owner at some point. So like they may be a killer, but ideally, if you're good enough, you can uh, 
find someone who's done it before. Yeah. So I was talking to Jim Donnelly, who's the one of the co-founders of Restore Hyper Wellness, which is another one of these companies that you just kind of saw hit, you know, exponential territory over the past couple of years in terms of the growth. And I asked him, I said, what did you do? And they, they obviously didn't have this growth like coming out of the shoot, right? Like they did the crawl, walk, run approach. And, and I said, what advice do you have for young emerging brands? They're kind of like the anti-franchise franchise. Like they don't consider themselves franchise people, right? They just kind of genuinely use that as an expansion strategy for expanding their, their company. Sure. And he was like, look, here's what we did at first. We had West Point connections and we focused on West Point people because we knew that if somebody could succeed in the military and especially on a battlefield, right? Like they can operate one of our businesses. Like this will be, you know, this is not as difficult. And then they also focused on med device uh, folks or folks in like the biotechnology, like sales reps in the biotech field, pharmaceutical field, because, you know, what Restore does is kind of like that, it has a big health science component to it. And so they knew that, you know, you had to have some chops to typically be successful in that field. So they focused on those two categories of people at first, and they had networks that enabled them to tap into that. And they got a really strong foundation of franchise owners. And they had a, a really, really, really good franchise development person. Yeah. And five, six years, whatever it is, years later, like they're, it's hard to find a restore to buy these days because they kind of sold out the country, but they got that foundation, that foundation in place. So huh. that's brilliant from them. Your model should be replicable enough where if you take someone who's just got the discipline, like from the military, that that's a perfect candidate. You've mentioned capital though, a few times. Can you talk about that? Like what you look for and how can a candidate evaluate an emerging franchise to make sure that they have the capital as a brand to support growth? Because the last thing you want to do is buy into a franchise system. They sell a ton of units, but they can't handle the growth. And then as a company, like system-wide, it's just not going well. Yeah, I mean, like franchise companies have to publish typically gap-audited financials in their FDD. So you can look at the FDD and kind of get a feel for what their balance sheets look like. Which, you know, the FDD is good black and white information. But again, there's always like an operational reality that might be a little more, like, a little different. And so like asking, understanding like who's behind the scenes at these companies, whether it's, you know, a, it could be an entrepreneur that's had a lot of success within, you know, another company that he exited or she exited that you can probably reasonably assume that they have capital and you can ask them that. It might not be on the balance sheet, but if they've had, you know, a successful exit, then they've been through that life cycle and have access to capital. But you know, the FDD and the balance sheet and then asking and just kind of poking around who, you know, how they're capitalized because you do not typically, well, I'm going to say do not. You want to be wary about getting involved with a franchise that I see a lot of young franchise companies, they sell their company operations, right? They sell the company sort of like, we just want to focus on franchising. Like this is a whole new business, whole new game. We got to understand this. But when they sell their corporate operation, they, you know, there goes the cash flow, Right like the monthly cash flow that hopefully they've been using to fund the franchise investment because it takes a lot of investment. And so understanding how all that goes is, is really important because franchising is a long game. You are not going to become profitable as a franchise company until you hit a certain level of franchisees that are open, successful, and paying royalties. So like kind of like that royalty self-sufficiency number is kind of like the first mountaintop. You don't want to be making money off the franchise fees or you don't want to be re relying on the cash from the franchise fees to fund the venture. So, you know, it's buckle in for the long game. I think it varies from obviously the royalty you're charging and the average unit volume of the brand. So there's no one size fits all number, but like it can take up to a hundred units cash flow. 
for a system to become, like you said, royalty self-sufficient, which I think that would surprise a lot of people to think that it would take that long for the franchisor to be starting to be profitable as an entity. Yeah. And again, like there's no like one answer to like all this stuff. There's just all these different layers and things that, you know, I think that's why a lot of people don't, (laughs) some people buy franchises the wrong way, right? Like you've heard about it. Like they see a widget, they fall in love with a widget and they're like, oh my God, I need to bring this widget to my, to my hometown. And, you know, sometimes I use the example of cookies, not named Crumble, um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but like, I mean, sometimes people get lucky and it works. And sometimes people are like, whoa, holy moly, like I got to get up at 4 a.m. to get the baker, get the oven going to bake the fresh food. And I got to take my kids to school. Like, how, how is this going to work? And it doesn't jive with the lifestyle piece of it, but they love the widget. They love whatever it is the business offers, but they don't really look at Number one, the franchise company. And number two, like what it takes to operate the business to make it successful. Because, you know, I mean, you see it. You've been in the game. Like, I mean, there's, we get all the fun information, <laughs> right? But what's the real information? What's it take to really make this business go? And how does that jive with what you want to be doing as an operator? So that's why it's like so hard to like, when people come like, I want to buy a business that I'm super passionate about. I'm like, cool, go find somebody else to help you. I can't help you. I'm not going to help you. Cause like, it's a trap. Like it, it can be such a trap, but if you like have an open mind and you're willing to look at this, like through the, all these different factors and lenses, like then it can be fun. Cause you can look at some businesses and learn about them. Like, holy moly. Like I had no idea that this company and this business could produce these kind of numbers or whatever it is. Right. So. And I think that's really good advice. Right. I mean, it's definitely just off on the surface level. Like just cause you're a customer doesn't mean you're going to love owning the business. It's totally different. Like. I love eating sushi, but there's no way I'm waking up at 4 a.m. to go to the fish market every day. Like, do not love it that much. Uh, I would never do that. Like, it's so you got to understand this, like, like you said, the operational reality of it. Something that's interesting that I don't know if other franchisors do this. I know Culver's does it. So they have like close to 800 locations, I think. They've been around since the 1980s. Very impressive average unit volume. If people don't know it, Culver's big burger franchise, predominantly in the Midwest, they're very specific about where they'll expand. They've taken the low and slow approach, like you said, Drew. They've only had two closures the entire time they've been around, which is incredible. So people always talk about failure rates. And, you know, there's the whole argument franchises are safer than starting your own small business. Well, that depends on the brand, like, and it's a spectrum. But Culver's two for, let's call it, I think it's like 780 open in their last FDD. So only two have ever failed. You are well below a 1% failure rate. So that's incredible. But where I'm going with it is something they do before you can even sign the franchise agreement to officially become a franchisee is they make you work in their restaurant for a week, a whole week. And I mean, think about it. That'll filter out some people real quick where they're like, whoa, like your burgers are great and I love your milkshakes, but nah, like I don't actually want to do this forever or for the next five, 10 years. So I thought that was an interesting way of like, like you said, like that's a good way to really, so I don't know if you could shadow a franchisee before you uh, start any of these franchises, but I think it's a good practice for both the franchisor and the franchisee. It is the best advice. It's like, look, all this stuff, all this theoretical stuff you're learning about a business, you want to cut right to it, go spend a day with a franchise <laughs> yeah, owner. Exactly, yeah. And go spend it, you know, and go do it multiple times if you can, because that'll give you the insight, you know, into what the reality is going to be like and versus, you know, cooking it up in your imagination, right? Or what you think it might be like, just go do it. And um, I think I would say that the only thing where I could see that hurting Culver's, because like I've had things, honestly, even like content creation with stuff I do in Twitter and the newsletter. I mean, it sucked early on. I wanted to quit and I almost did, but had some conversations with people. I obviously didn't quit, but like 
I think early on in a venture and something new, you can maybe confuse just growing pains and learning curves with this sucks. I don't want to do it ever. Like this isn't for me. So that would be the only thing where you kind of, as an individual have to check yourself and be like, am I saying this because it's new and it's hard right now? Or do I truly just not like this and this won't be a successful thing? And I really think only the individual can make that call. Yeah. And it goes to like, are you looking like for people that are looking at investing in the franchise, right? There's all these things we're talking about the franchise company, but you got to look in the mirror too, right? Like humility is a big thing. Like, yeah, if for any, any new thing, right. Whether it's a franchise or whatever, but like being humble and delayed gratification, like not doing this for a, a short term paycheck, right? Like knowing that there's going to be some kind of, you know, there's something long game that you're trying to achieve that you can't get doing whatever it is you're doing, whether it's the corporate world or something else, but it's not going to come easy. Nobody's going to give it to you and, and you're going to have to grind. And like, I think humility kind of has a little bit that plays into like just being willing to do the shit that you're going to have to do as an owner that nobody can predict what that shit's going to be. Yeah. But it's, you know, stuff's going to happen. And um, that <laughs> mindset, you know, I think play, plays a big role in the other side of the coin with, you know, the individuals who have success with franchise owners. Or with franchises, so. Completely agree. You you know, like, this whole broker world, man, it is the wild, wild west. Like, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's blowing smoke, especially right now with all these layoffs that are going on, right? Like, this oh, is... Oh, God. God bless people's LinkedIn uh, inbox right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you get those messages from somebody from a different country. Hey, your background is amazing. Have you ever thought about starting a business, right? Um, for a first-time franchise owner that, like, is genuinely trying to figure out if there is a franchise out there, like you need to know who you're getting advice from because there is no regulation on the broker stuff. All those certifications don't mean anything. <laughs> you need to know who is giving you advice and the good brokers will give you the tools and advice to help you evaluate any franchise they recommend to you. Like they're not going to sit there, be on the calls with you on the reps. Like they will give you the tools that you can use to, you know, gain a, a lot of experience really quickly to evaluate these franchises. And, but I mean, man, it's, you know, there's, you've seen the broker will grow. It's crazy what's going on out there. And, um, and there's all kinds of crap being pushed. I don't know, man. I just like, I guess the uh, FTC probably just doesn't have the bandwidth to focus on it at this granular level. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy. We'll see what happens going forward. But I feel like at some point things got to tighten up a little bit. Hopefully it does. I'm curious, man. Any other, we've talked stretch lab, we've talked British swim school and the K9 resort one as well. Any other like examples you've seen over the years of just brands that turned out to be uh, runners in your own words there? Yeah, Club Pilates. That was a runner. Um, again, it's hard to buy one right now. But again, like Pilates, right? We all knew about Pilates, but nobody had mainstreamed it. Well, you know, Anthony Geisler, he's the guy behind it. You know, you know, the story with Club Pilates, like they had like 30 locations, kind of founder led company. I had one of their big franchisees on the podcast, but uh, I don't know really much about the founding story. Anyway, Anthony, who's he's had a couple of successful exits in the fitness world. He stumbled across Club Pilates, founder led company, you know, I don't know, 30 locations or something like that. Bought it, saw what they had, bought it, put his infrastructure team, you know, his what he knows works in boutique fitness. And um, again, you kind of had like it was a lower investment, recurring revenue, membership based model, tapping into this, figuring out a way to like take Pilates mainstream and kind of like Stretch Lab, like they the market reacted in an amazing way. And um, I mean, there's more guys that I know that own Club Pilates that have never done a Pilates in their life that are very successful with Club Pilates. 
I mean, you, whatever the level five guys are doing, you know, I'm paying attention, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Those no, guys are a lot sure. smarter than we are. Um, yeah. What else has been a runner, man? Um, you, know, you, you know, the LA mental health. Have you been tracking that one? That's one of the ones that almost worry me in that a lot of sold units, not a lot open. Or am I wrong on that? Oh, yeah. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's something in like they sold like four to five hundred franchises before they had ever opened a franchise location. They had like 13 corporate locations open, right? So they had they had expanded corporately. So, but they didn't have any franchise locations open. And so see, like that's where the capital question that you talked about before. It's like, can they support that growth? I mean, that's a lot of growth. <laughs> yeah. And so they ended up taking on a strategic investment from a private equity company. Okay. Yeah, they probably needed it. Yeah, I mean, they also probably had a ridiculous amount of franchise fee revenue. That's what I mean. Like what you just said, that was never on the front page of some, you know. TechCrunch or any like any startup or finance news source, but that's an insane amount of growth, and that's what I mean. We're like within our franchise bubble, like some of these brands just get treated. It's like an asset where it's like oh, there's just a rush, and everyone all of a sudden is hot on one brand. And I've seen them like IFPGs kind of listing them as one of their top brands, which I don't know what that means, but yeah, I've seen they've grown a lot. It'll be interesting to see how those new locations do when they open. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, hopefully like it's, you know, there'll be some growing pains, but they'll, you know, they'll figure it out for sure. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting one. I don't know if there's any other runners out there right now like like that, you know, but um, there will be. I'm, and you just never know. You never see it coming. You never know where it's going to come from next, right? Here's a question for you, because we did a little interaction on Twitter. I did a thread, folks, on a franchise called Funbox. I have no affiliation with them. I just think from a business perspective, it's super unique. Like they put up, uh, they build the world's biggest bounce house effectively. It's a 25,000 square feet of pure bounce house. So it's incredibly fun for kids. That's also what I want to write about. It just like looks awesome. Um, I would have loved that when I was a kid, but they're franchising it, but their FDE numbers were ridiculous where it was showing, cause it's kind of like a traveling road show, right? Where you're not like, you don't own a property or lease a property even on a annual basis. You can go into malls, you can set up outdoors. You're kind of this carnival that travels around your territory. And anyway, their corporate territory did like, you know, 500 grand in, in EBITDA in like a 22 week period or some ridiculous number like that. Folks, do your own research in the FDD on this one. Um, anyway, I wrote about it on Twitter because it was just, I like, I'm a nerd and love diving into different businesses. But Drew, you were saying you're not sure there's value from a franchisee perspective. Yeah, just thoughts there on like what characteristics led you to saying that. I think I made an assumption like I tell everybody not to do very quickly and maybe I was in a bad mood when I fired <laughs> off my, my, my little Twitter fingers got a little yeah. uh, issue there. Um, We've all been there. Again, assumptions. I'm like, all right. So like they developed a relationship with a manufacturer in China. Cool. But what else? Like what else is going to be behind the, the scenes that that they've put together to really help the franchisees, you know, that, that are going to provide ongoing value for them. And I just, again, assumptively me making like a three minute, you know, sure, couple trickle down thought process. I was like, I don't know if I could see it. Gotcha. But I haven't taken the time to do any of the analysis, which again, is, you know, the risk in, you know, making assumptions. So fair enough. But I, you know, I, like, I would think PR is a massive thing in that business, right? To like, how do you get connected with like local news stations to like, you know, get all the free PR and stuff? I but, think the cor corporate's done a good job of that. So that's a good point. Like, I think it's almost some brands, like just the business they run, lend themselves to like, getting press like and this is like i mean i'm sure local news stations right they see if you open up in the charlotte area uh or, or wilmington sorry right this and all of a sudden there's some company putting up a massive bounce house and every kid in wilmington's going to like that's cool to that's fun to write about it definitely has that element but my thought is generally now 
this is not to be like insulting, but I just think it shows how hard it is to like do run a business, start a business. I really think most like your average person just getting from zero to one is so hard for them. And that they, you know, from figuring out the brand to figuring out all the operational nuances that come with any business, figuring out what are your best marketing channels, what tech stack should you use, all these different things, pricing your pitch to customers, your pitch to hire people and why they should work. Like there's so many different things. And like, I think that like a lot of people just think, oh, like they're not a big brand. Nobody knows about them. You shouldn't be paying a franchise fee and a royalty. But I don't know. I just think like for most people, it's like you should buy a franchise because you probably can't even make a great website, let alone all the other stuff that you have to figure out, which maybe that sounds negative, but I just think it shows like, again, like it's just hard to go from zero to one. And that's what franchises do. Yeah, no, no, I think it's great advice. I think what you're saying is amazing advice. It is the world for a lot of people, right? And that's where franchising can be amazing is, you know, not having to worry about a lot of that stuff. And, you know, if you get in with the right franchise, it's the right fit, like it's life-changing, like literally life-changing. Like I had a guy text me, I helped him get into some super cuts and he was like, dude, thank you. You know, this changed my life. And I'm like, shit, that was cool. Um, (laughs) So like, but like, it's the same thing. It's just a lot of layers to it, big decision, lot of ways to go about evaluating the franchises to figure out if it's the right fit kind of thing so yeah but no it it is such a cool thing you never hear about those life-changing stories a lot of times either right like you just doesn't get the press like a lot of other stuff but yeah it's um it's a cool thing man it's cool man i swear like franchisees and especially the multi-unit ones are like i don't know what the words are but like they're just like rich people in disguise almost like because you all of a sudden like i've had conversations and on twitter and even before this you just kind of they're like oh yeah i own 15 or 20 of these. And I'm like, wow, okay. And it's not some fancy title at an investment bank or some other company. But I mean, these guys have more access to cash flow than 99% of America. It's crazy what you can do over time. Yeah. And you're doing a good job of getting those stories out there, right? Telling those stories to help people like their eyes get open to what could be possible. You're doing a really good job of that. I appreciate that, man. But yeah, that's the goal. I mean, like, it's really just Franchising isn't best for everyone. Like I said before, right? A lot of people do have a hard time going from zero to one. But if you're not that person, if you are a savvy entrepreneur and can figure this stuff out on your own, you're probably not going to like being in a franchise because you're not going to be, you know, you're going to have someone telling you what to do, what you already know how to do. So it's not for everyone. But I do think if you're looking to start a business, you should at least check the box of, yeah, I did my research on franchises and it's not for me. But like, I would bet that for a lot of people, they'd actually be surprised and how many brands are would actually be a good idea for them? Yeah, so it's fun. It, you get to learn about you know <laughs> yeah. how businesses operate and make money. So that's the thing. At a minimum, you're gonna have fun. All right, man. This has been awesome. A little bit longer of an episode than usual, but I had fun talking. So why not uh, let it go? Is there anywhere online where uh, people can follow you along, whether it's social media, website, you know, and learn more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, like my pathetic attempt to try to be a tweeter is uh, in work in progress. So do not follow me on Twitter. It's follow the wolf and go follow, follow somebody else. But uh, no, the easiest way is just to Google me, D-R-U, Carpenito. And I think I'm the only Drew Carpenito in the country. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find if you want to talk franchising. All right, cool. Well, uh, he's got a website. I think he's being humble. We'll plug your website in the show notes, man, um, if people want to reach out. All right, man, this was fun. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Wolf. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. 